Father, we pray that you might give us ears to hear your word, that you might remind us when we come to it that this is your word to us, that you speak to us and let us know who you are, that you call us to live a life that glorifies you, not in order that we might be saved, but in response to the amazing love that you've shown for us at the cross. We pray that you might plant your word deep within us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been uh, doing a series in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that we have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. And this morning, for those who'd like to follow along, we're reading from chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter because this is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Some very strong words from Paul to the church in Corinth today. Now, we've seen in the last few weeks there are some are from Chloe's household. Chloe was obviously um, somebody who lived in Corinth and likely her household was where one of the house churches in Corinth was meeting. And some people had come from Chloe's household with a, uh, to Paul in Ephesus with a letter from the church, but also with the report about all of the things that had been going on in the church. And over the first few chapters, Paul has been dealing with another issue that this church 
that, that is very serious, is the way that they've fragmented into different groups who want nothing to do with one another. And he's been talking about the need for unity in the gospel. But in this passage, you can see he's, he's moved on to another topic now, another thing from, uh, from what has been reported to him from Chloe's household. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, the way that's worded suggests it's not his mother, but his stepmother. But all the same, that's a very serious problem and not something that the Bible encourages in any way, shape or form. Instead of being upset at this, at what was going on in the church, the church, or at least a part of the church, were proud. Look at how inclusive we are. Look at how tolerant we can be. Perhaps that's what it was. And Paul tells them, they need to gather together and, as a church, gather together formally and he said I'll, I'll be with you in spirit through through this letter that I've written to you and you need to kick this person out of the church now it's worth noting that his purpose for that is not that this person will go to hell he actually says quickly I want you to kick him out so that in his phrase that the flesh might be destroyed and that um his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, that he might get a wake-up call, that he needs to repent of this sin so that he might be saved. Now the question comes then, if we want to be faithful to God's word, do we need to kick out the same sort of sinners in our church? Do we need to kick out the, the single mum who was never married and has children. Those, you know, a, a couple who are not yet married and are living together. Do we need to kick them out of the church? A same-sex couple that are living together, would we need to kick them out of a church? And then Paul makes it clear, he's, not, he's dealing with an issue of sexual sin. But sexual sin is not the only problem. What about those who are greedy? What about those who have gotten drunk or slandered or swindled? Should we kick them out of our church? Where do forgiveness and grace come into this equation? What happened to what we sang just before about nothing you can do can make him love you more? Nothing that you've done can make him close the door. I hope you can see it's worth being very clear about what Paul is and what Paul is not saying in this chapter of his letter to the Corinthian church. So the short answer is no, we should not kick out everybody uh, who is a sinner from the church. Or there wouldn't be a church. The issue is not primarily that this man was tempted and fell into sexual sin. The issue primarily is that this man was unrepentantly living in sexual sin. That he saw nothing wrong with what he was doing and saw that this was perfectly fine for a Christian to be doing. And that more to the point that the whole church, or at least a faction of the church, agreed with him and were proud and saw nothing wrong 
with what was happening. The idea was, well, if Jesus died on the cross to forgive all our sins, therefore we're free to sin as much as we want. That's the idea that this person had, that this part of this church had. And we see Paul has to address this idea in a number of places and a number of letters that he writes. Grace is so easily misunderstood as sins are forgiven, therefore sins don't matter. Go out, eat, drink and be merry. And although all of us, we might not state it as as boldly as that, I can sin as much as I want. I think we've all felt that temptation, haven't we? I think all of us have maybe even just thought along that line, even just for a moment, oh, well, God will forgive me. Jesus died on the cross. My sins are forgiven. Therefore, what I do doesn't matter. But if unrepentant sin then is still a problem, how can we say, as we said before, nothing you can do? can make him love you more. How can we say that as God's people we are not saved by our works if then we're going to say, actually, if you're doing certain things, that means you know, you're not really saved or that you shouldn't be part of the church. Let's think about a bloke. Let's call him Jeremy. I hope I don't think we have any Jeremys here today, do we? Um... Jeremy is a married man and one day or on multiple occasions Jeremy conveniently forgets that he's a married man and has sexual relations with a woman who is not his wife and then his wife finds out. And let's say Jeremy's wife chooses not to divorce him and to break uh, the, the covenant with him which, let's be clear, the Bible says she is perfectly within her rights to do, given that he has committed adultery against her. But let's say instead, he says that he's sorry that it happened and she chooses to forgive him. Should Jeremy then go out with his mates and say to them, look, she forgave me, that means she obviously really doesn't care if I cheat on her. Therefore, I can cheat on her as much as I like. Is that how he should respond to the grace and the forgiveness that he has been shown? He doesn't deserve to have been forgiven. In, in terms of law and what is deserved, he deserves to be divorced. And that is not, as we can imagine, how any person should respond to that kind of grace and love being shown to them. We would all question if that was the case whether Jeremy actually loved his wife. And I think we would question that with very good reason. If he was really sorry for what he did, he would be thankful to be forgiven and he would be repentant. Now the Bible sometimes depicts how God who made the world, who made us and who gave this world to us like a king who rules over everything and we are his subjects. 
openly in rebellion and treason against the king who made us. Other passages depict him, our God, as a husband and his people as his wife who cheats on him with other gods and with other things time and time again. We see that that picture often in the Old Testament in particular is God pictured as the husband of his people, Israel. And while God has every right to divorce his people, to cut them off from all of the good things that he has made, including life itself and his presence with them, he instead chooses to forgive. He chooses not to hold our sins against us. But God is also a God of justice. And it's not just if somebody has broken laws to just say, oh, we'll pretend that that didn't happen. There was a price that needed to be paid for our sins. And that is why we as Christians make so much of the cross. Why it was what we sung about this morning. Why we say that this is what shows us what love is. That the price that we could never pay for our sins, Jesus paid in our place on the cross. While we were still his enemies, Jesus came to come and uh, to show us what true love is. To lay down his life for his friends. To pay the price of our rebellion and our unfaithfulness. All of our sins, all the hurt that we've caused, all the things that we feel guilty for can be forgiven. All of it can be forgiven if we trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. Trust that he has paid the price for those sins. Trust and ask him for forgiveness. But if then, being forgiven, we think that's a good reason to go and sin as much as we want, that shows we really have not understood what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The fact that we are forgiven does not show that God doesn't care about sin. It shows that he loves us incredibly, even in spite of how horrendous our sin against him is. If we think that being forgiven is a reason to sin as much as we want, we didn't really want to be freed from sin, did we? We want to be, as God's people, we want to be free from sin, not free to sin. But there's a very important clarification that needs to be made here. Every single one of us will sin sometimes. Even after we've been forgiven by Jesus, even after we've put our trust in him, we will all fail sometimes. We will all fall short sometimes. John writes in his first letter to the churches in Asia, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. We will all get it wrong. And sometimes we feel really guilty. Sometimes we can even feel really worthless and like we're not even a Christian when we sin and we fall short. That's not what God wants either. When we sin, when we fall short, we can repent. We can ask God for forgiveness knowing that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But in this passage, Paul warns us strongly against unrepentance. He uses the image like yeast spreading through the dough. One, people unrepentantly sinning within the church can corrupt others, can encourage others to think, oh, this is obviously what it means to be a Christian, that God doesn't care about what we do. Just so long as we come to church and we sing the songs and we can go out and do whatever we like and without ever being repentant of the things that we get wrong. But instead, because Jesus died for us, Paul tells us we should want to be new. We should want to be like him. And he tells us this with this illustration he takes from the Passover festival. Let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness. He's just used that illustration of this unrepentance being like yeast, like leaven that spreads through the whole dough. He says that, that yeast, that leavening of malice and wickedness, that's not what we're called to be anymore. Yes, a little part of that will always live in us until the day when Christ returns. But that's not what we want to strive to be. That's not who we are in Christ anymore. But instead, let us keep the festival. That is, let us live our lives with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us be a new creation. Let us lift our eyes to not, I can sin as much as I want, but to, God loved me so much, I want my life to... Uh, bring glory to him I want my life to show thankfulness to him I want my life to show people what Jesus this the God whom I love so much is like by showing his love to others but that does still leave us with one big question to answer then so no we don't have to kick out every sinner from the church but do we need to kick out anyone who claims to be a Christian but is living in unrepentant sin within our church? Do we need to kick out a boyfriend and a girlfriend who are living together before marriage? Do we need to kick out, let's say, a same-sex couple came to this church to hear the gospel, to hear what, what it is that Christians actually believe? And again... Also, this passage is primarily dealing with a sexual sin, but Paul does make it clear that it's not just unrepentant sexual sin that's a problem. What if someone in the church was an unrepentant drunkard and they thought there's nothing wrong with getting drunk every Friday and Saturday night? Or what what if someone in the church was an unrepentant slanderer? Do we need to kick them out of the church? Do we need to... As Paul says, not even eat with such people. 
We need to wrestle sometimes with God's word. We need to grapple with it, especially when it says something that goes very much against what our culture says and what our desires might be. It's worth hearing the weight or feeling the weight of the words that Paul says in this passage about the seriousness of unrepentant sin within the church, especially of those who profess to be believers. He's not so worried about people who don't believe. It's not his place to worry about what they do. But those who profess to be believers. So we want to wrestle with that and take it very seriously. But I think there is one key reason why the application of what Paul is saying here is a little different today than it was back then. Eating with somebody in ancient Near Eastern cultures was a real sign that you approve of that person, that you accept that person, that they are somebody on your level. There was a whole, you know, whole lot being communicated by eating a meal with somebody in those days that is not something that's necessarily meant or are understood by it today. And that's why it was such a controversial thing that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees couldn't make any sense of that. They saw it as him as being tarnished by doing that. And likewise, in this day and age, we don't necessarily expect that everybody who comes to church on a Sunday morning is a Christian. We are open to people coming in and hearing the word of God who don't yet believe in Jesus or haven't yet put their faith in him. We, we, you know, we hope that people will do that and hear the word of God and believe. So I don't think we have to say, you know, have a checklist of unrepentant sins up on the door and say, if you're, if you're unrepentantly doing any of these, you are not allowed to come any further. But we do still need to apply this passage to our lives and to our church. You see, they're including him in their church and eating with him was proclaiming the message that Christians endorse sleeping with your stepmother. That this is what Christ stands for. That this is what it means to be a Christian. Just go and do whatever you want. And that, of course, reflects very badly on Christ. We're called to be Christ's ambassadors to show the world what Jesus is like. And so if we're unrepentantly living in sin... We're sending the message that that's what Jesus is like. So it is a serious matter. People who claim to be Christians living in unrepentant sin. And so while I would say the door is open for people to come in, church discipline, there's a phrase we probably don't use very often in this day and age, church discipline is still important. The church discipline is not something that I like doing. It's probably something I haven't done all that I should in that area. But I want to say this morning, if any Christian is living in unrepentant sin, it's never too late in this life to repent and to turn from it and to be forgiven. Never too late. It might mean making significant changes 
but it's God's best for you. It's, God doesn't keep us from things because he wants to stop us having fun. Everything that he says not to do is for a reason. Everything he tells us to do is for our good. But if they won't repent, they can still come to church. But there are some things at church that are just for those who are the community of fellowship, those who put their trust in Jesus, who, com- who made a commitment to follow Jesus. One of those is membership. If somebody was living in unrepentant sin, then they would not be uh, invited to become to join in the membership. And if they were already a member, we might have to, as Paul describes it in this passage, come together as a church and say that person is no longer a member and no longer has a voice in the, life, in the direction of this church. And the other thing that's just for believers is communion. And if somebody was living in unrepentant sin, we would ask them not to partake in it. And we'll see in a few weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that communion is not just you know, a, a fun little ritual we do sometimes, but that there is a real danger in uh, taking God's, taking the, the, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So in finishing then, the Bible is very clear. God loves you. And God loved us even when there was no reason to love us. Nothing we can do can make him love you more. Because of his great love, not all the things he knew we were going to do, because of his great love, he gave his only son. He's forgiven us at great cost to himself. But don't make the mistake of unrepentance. Don't make the mistake of seeing that as an excuse to live a life that actually reflects badly on the one who saved you. Don't fall for the lie that forgiveness means we're free to sin all that we want. Know that because of the cross we're set free from the grip of sin. Not that we will be without sin in this life. But we are in in many ways set free. There's no set situation where we must fail, where we must fall short. And know that when we do fall, when we do sin, we can always find forgiveness. For he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us when we bring it to him and repent. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Even the parts of your word that are confronting and hard. We pray that you might, not, you might help us to not fall for the lie that says, because you've forgiven our sins, therefore you don't care about sin. But to remember that instead, you loved us so much that you chose to die for us in spite 
of how much we had sinned and fallen short. We pray that you might help us to be faithful in following your word, to make sure that the yeast, the leavening of unrepentance is not able to spread throughout your church. We pray that you would help us to instead want to live lives that glorify you, to show thankfulness to you for the love that you've shown us, that that we might be your ambassadors, showing your love, the incredible love that you've shown to us, to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.